Welcome back to the podcast, Heming Baraniacs. We're talking about Hail and Farewell. <clears throat> uh, chapter 1, first part of Chapter 1. Um, my, what was it? Love this introduction to Yeats, but who is Edward? Don't I feel like a fool? Um, Swim says the mama fishy says. The overture was set in 1894, so Ave begins in 1899. George is still living in London on King's Bench Walk. Edward is George's cousin, Edward Martin, who we met in the overture. I love the Rook and Owl imagery. It's so fitting. Here is Yeats and here is Martin. Okay. Give a look at these pictures. Um, okay. Yep, they've both got spectacles. Yeats looks like maybe you'd be played like a by a Benedict Cumberbatch or something like that, and um, Edward Martin would be played by uh, John Lithgow. Um, <laughs> Independent Theatre was by a subscription-only organisation in London from 1891 until 1897 that gave special for performances of plays which have a literary and artistic rather than a commercial value. The theatre produced modern realist plays, mostly by continental European playwrights on the London stage. Yeats was 13 years younger than George, which explains to me the patronising tone George is using thus far in his recollection of the meeting. George is also coming off as a snob to me. Yeah, I get snob vibes. For those interested, here is a Wikipedia entry for King Bench Walk in London. And here's some statistics. Oh, I love these statistics, by the way. We read about seven pages today. Ave has eight, uh, sorry, 189 pages left. We should finish volume one before the end of March. Well, that's good. Good to know. That's a good pace, I suppose. Um, it felt like more than seven pages, to be honest. It felt like a heck of a lot of pages, but not to worry. Techrific says, who is Edward? It's Martin we've been reading about from the beginning of the book. He's a playwright and activist for the Irish Republic. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a dope, you know. Um, I can read a whole long-ass chapter, apparently about a guy, and then get into the next chapter and be like, yep, never heard of him. But I don't... I Yeah, I am a dope. But... Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, my brain is just not tuned right for this kind of thing. Like, if you're going to talk to me about someone for a whole chapter and none of it sinks in, I can blame my ADD for that, sure. <laughs> but also, uh, like, write better. Um, also, in Art Without the Artist, Martin is described as being Assyrian, hungry. I suspect <clears throat> more means greedy for change and the Celtic revival, and this chapter Yeats is given the epithet hieratic, meaning priestly, reading as haughty, elevated and old-fashioned. Moore is also surprised to see them arrive together, which is also interesting to note going forward. I love the description of Yeats and Martin as a rook and now, respectively. It, in fact, the whole chapter was very vivid and well-written. The building up of tension between the characters is foreshadowing or perhaps mirroring of the great social tensions that are building up in Ireland at the time. It seems like an almost idyllic picture of intellectuals coming together and politely disagreeing, but we know that a storm is brewing in the kettle of society. 
awesome. Thank you, Techrific. We have such different reading experiences, you and I, Tech. Like, I'll read it and be like, I literally, like, I got the gist, but everything else just, I didn't, didn't absorb it. And then you'll say it was so riveting and vivid and well-written, and it makes me feel like an absolute uh, idiot. <laughs> uh, but what the heck? King's Bench Walk looks just like they are very... London-esque town. Um, cool. And uh, hailed farewell. Okay, where are we up to? Excuse me. Yawning while podcasting. Not good. Not good. Yeats was forgotten, and almost as completely as before, a stray memory of his subtle intelligence perhaps crossing my mind from time to time. Uh, and a vague regret coming into it that he had dropped out of my life, but no effort was made to find him, and I did not see him again until we met at Simon's room unexpectedly, for it was for a talk with Simon's before bedtime that I had walked over to King's Bench Walk, but it was Yeats who opened the door, Simon's was out and would be back presently. He generally returned home about one. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't I come in? We fell to talking about Simon's, who spent his evenings at the Alhambra and the Empire, watching the ballet. Having written Symbolism in Literature, he was now investigating the problem of symbolism in gesture. Or was it symbolism in rhythm, or rhythm symbolism? Even among men of letters, conversation would be difficult, were it not for the weakness of our absent friends. And to pass the time I told Yeats of an evening I had spent with Simmons at the Empire two weeks ago, and how I had gone with him after the rose and crown, and thinking to amuse him I reported the nonsense I had heard spoken of over tankards of ale by various contemporary poets. He hung dreamily over the fire, and fearing that he should think I had spoken unkindly of Simmons, a thing I had no intention of doing, Simmons being at the time one of my greatest friends, I spoke of the pleasure I took in his society, and then of my admiration of his prose, so distinguished, so fine, and so subtle. The temple clock clanging out the hour interrupted my eulogy. As Simmons does not seem to return, I said I must go home to bed. Yeats begged me to stay a little longer, and, tempted by the manuscripts scattered about the floor, I sat down and asked him to tell me what he had been writing. He needed no pressing to talk of his work, a trait that I like in an author, for if I do not want to hear about a man's work, I do not want to hear about himself. He told me that he was revising the stories that he had contributed to different magazines and was writing some new ones, and altogether these were to form a book called The Secret Rose. I'm afraid I interrupted you. No. I had struck work some time. I came upon a knot in one of the stories, one which I could not disentangle, at least not tonight. I begged him to allow me to try to disentangle it, and when I succeeded, and to his satisfaction, I expected his face to light up, but it remained impassive, heretic, as ancient Egypt. Wherein now lies his difficulty, I asked myself, being a poet, he must be able to find words, and he began to talk of the search for the right word. Not so much the right word, Yeats interrupted, but the right language. If I were only sure of what language to put upon them. But you don't want to write your stories in Irish like Edward. 
A smile trickled into his dark countenance, and I heard him say that he had no Irish. It was not for a different language that he yearned, but for a style. Morris had made one to suit his stories, and I learned that one might be sought for and found among the Sligo peasants. Only it would take years to discover, and that when then he would be too old to use it. You don't mean the brogue, the ugliest dialect in the world. No dialect is ugly, he said. The bypaths are all beautiful. It is the broad road of the journalist that is ugly. Such picturesqueness of speech enchants me, and the sensation was of a window being thrown suddenly open and myself looking down some broad chase along which we would go together talking literature, I saying that very soon there would not be enough grammar left in England for literature. English was becoming a lean language. We have lost Yeats, and I fear forever the second person singular of the verbs thee and thou are only used by peasants, and the peasants use them incorrectly. In poetry, of course, Yeats shook his head. Thee and thou were as impossible in verse as in prose, and the habit of English writers to allow their characters to thee and the thou each other had made the modern poetic drama ridiculous. Nor could he sympathise with me when I spoke of the lost subjunctive, and I understood him to be of the opinion that a language might lose all its grammar and still remain a vehicle for literature, and the literary artist always finding material for his art in the country. Like a landscape painter, I answered him, but we are losing our verbs, we are no longer ascend and descend, we go up and we go down, birds still continue to alight, whereas humans, human beings get out and get in. Yeats answered that even in Shakespeare's time, people were being beginning to talk of the decline of language. No language, he said, was ever so grammatical as Latin, yet the language died, perhaps from excess of grammar. It is with idiom and not with grammar that the literary artist should concern himself, and stroking his thin yellow hands slowly, he looked into the midnight fire, regretting he had no gift to learn living speech from those who knew it, the peasants. It was only from them one could learn to write, their speech being living speech, flowing out of the habits of their lives, struck out of life itself, he said, and I listened to him telling of a volume of folklore collected by him in Sligo, a welcome change, truly, is such after reading the Times, and he continued to drone out his little tales in his own incomparable fashion, muttering after each one of them like an oracle that has spent itself a beautiful story, a beautiful story. When he had muttered these words, his mind seemed to fade away, and I could not but think that he was tired and being would be happier tucked up in bed. But when I rose out of my chair, he begged me to remain. I would, if he would, tell me another story. He began one, but Simmons came in in the middle of it, tired after long symbolistic studies at the Empire, and so hungry that he began to eat bread and butter, sitting opposite to us and listening to what we were saying. Without, however, giving us much of his attention, he seemed to like listening to Yeats talking about style, but I gathered from this detachment that he felt his own style had been formed years ago, a thing of beauty without doubt, but accidentally bestowed upon him so much was it at variance with his appearance and his conversation, whereas Yeats and his style were the same thing, and his strange old-world appearance and his chanting voice enabled me to identify him with the stories he told me, and so completely that I 
could not do otherwise than believe that Angus, Etain, Diamuid, and Deidre, and the rest, were speaking through him. He is a liar in their hands, they whisper through him, as the wind through the original forest. But we are plantations, and came from England in the 17th century. There is more race in him than in any one I have seen for a long while, I muttered, while wending my way down the long stairs across Fountain Court, through Pump Court by the Temple Church, under the archway, into King's Bench Walk. It is pleasant to say with a Stay with a friend till the dusk, especially in summer. The blue dusk that begins between one and two is always wonderful, and that morning, after listening to many legends, it struck me as I stood under the trees in King's Bench Walk, watching the receding stars, that I had discovered at last the boon companion I had been seeking ever since I came to live in London. A boon companion is as necessary to me as a valet is to Sir William Eden. Books do not help me to while away the time left over while I am not writing, and I am fain to take this opportunity to advise everybody to attend to his taste for reading. Once it is lost, it is hard to recover and believe, if nothing else, in this, that reading is becoming an increasing necessity. The plays that entertain us are few, the opera is hardly more numerous, there are not always concerts, and one cannot choose the music that shall be played if one be not a king. To have music in the evenings at home we must choose for a wife one who can play Chopin, and modern education does not seem to have increased the number of these women. One meets one, misses her, and forever after is forced to seek literary conversation, and literary conversation is difficult to get in London. One cannot talk literature in a club or at a literary dinner only with a boon companion, and my search is even a more difficult one than that of the light of love, who once told me that her great trouble in life was to find an amant de coeur. To the confession amused me, the lady being exceedingly beautiful, but I understood her as soon as she explained all the necessary qualifications for the post. He must be in love with me, she said. As you are very polite, you will admit that there can be no difficulty about that and I must be in love with him. Now you are beginning to understand. He must be able to give me his whole time. He must be sufficiently well off to take me out to dinner, to the theatre, to send me flowers. Money, of course, I would not take from him. Your trouble, as you explain, it is a revelation of life, I answered, but it is not greater than mine. She tossed her hair, head. For what I am seeking in London at the present time is a boon companion. In many respects, he must resemble your Amartya Kua. He must like my company, and as you are very polite, you will admit that there can be no difficulty about that. I shall have to enjoy his company, and so many other things are necessary that I am beginning to lose heart. Mary pressed me to recapitulate my paragon and to console her, for there is nothing so consoling as to find that one's neighbour's troubles are at least as great as one's own. I told her that my boon companion must be between thirty and fifty, until a man reaches the age of thirty he is but a boy without experience of life. I prefer him between thirty-five and forty, and my boon companion must be a bachelor or separated from his wife. How he spends his days concerns me not only in the evenings do I want his company at dinner about twice a week, for it is my pleasure to prolong the evenings into the small hours of the morning, talking literature and the other arts until the mouth refuses another cigar and the eyelids are heavy with sleep. 
You see, he must be a smoker, preferably a cigar rather than a cigarette smoker, but I lay no stress upon that particular point. I should prefer his appearance and manner to be that of a gentleman, and this is another point upon which I lay no particular stress. His first qualification is intelligence, and amongst women you will understand me better than any other, your lovers having always been men of intellect. Any one of them would suit me very well. You have loved, I think, Adrian Marx, Copé, and Becky. Yes, and many others, she answered. You have required great works from your lovers and have gotten them, but I do not require that my boon companion shall write nearly as well as any of the men you have honoured. My companion's literature concerns me much less than his conversation, and if it were not that only a man of letters can understand literature, I would say that I should not care if he had never put a pen to paper. I am interested much more in his critical than his creative faculty, he must, for my purpose, be a man keenly critical, and he must be a witty man too, for to be able to distinguish between a badly and a well-written book is not enough. A professor of literature can do that occasionally. My man must be able to entertain me with unexpected sallies. I would not hear him speak of the verbal felicities of Keats, or of the truly noble diction of Milton. And I would ring and tell my servant to call the cab were I to catch him mumbling, and with new-spangled ore flames in the forehead of the morning sky. If the subject were poetry, my boon companion would be expected by me to flash out unexpected images, saying that Keats remained, reminded him of a great tabby cat purring in the sun, and I would like to hear him mutter that there was too much rectory lawn in Tennyson, not that I would for a moment hold up the lawn, and the cat is as felicities of criticism, he would, I hope, be able to flash out something better. It is hard to find a simile when one is seeking for one. He would have to be interested in the other arts and be able to talk about them intelligently, literature not being sufficient to while an evening away. And in every art, he must be able to distinguish between washtubs and vases. He must know instinctively that Manet is all vase and that Mr. Dash portraits are all washtub. When the conversation wanders from painting to sculpture, he must not be very concerned to talk about Rodin, and if he should speak of this sculptor, his praise should be measured. There is not the character of any country upon Rodin's sculpture. It is not French nor Italian. It would be impossible to say whence it came if one did not know. Oh, God. As a decorative artist, he is without remarkable talent. And he too often parodies Michel Angelo, Michel Angelo, would be a phrase that would not displease me to hear, especially if it were followed by only the marvellous portraitist commands our admiration. The bronzes, not the marbles, they are but copies by Italian workmen, untouched by the master, who alone, among masters, has never been able to put his hand to the chisel. A knowledge of music is commendable in a boon companion, else he must be unmusical like Yeats. It would be intolerable to hear him speak of Tristan and ask immediately after if Madame Butterfly were not a fine work too. 
With her enchanting smile, Mary admitted that my difficulties were not less than hers, and so I kissed her and returned with some regret next day to London and to dear Edward, who has served me as a boon companion ever since he came to live in the temple. He likes late hours, he is a bachelor, a man of leisure, and has discovered at last what to admire and what to repudiate, but he is not very sure-footed and on the new ground, and being a heavy man, his stumblings are loud. Moreover, he is obsessed by a certain part of his person, which he speaks of as his soul. It demands mass in the morning, vespers in the afternoon, and compels him to believe in the efficacy of sacraments and the Pope's indulgences, and it forbids him to sit at dinner with me if I do not agree to abstain from flesh meat on Fridays and from remarks regarding my feelings towards the ladies we meet in the railway trains and hotels when we go abroad. When Simmons came to live in the temple, I looked forward to finding a boon companion in him. He is intelligent and well-versed in literature, French and English, a man of somewhat yellowish temperament, whom a wicked fairy had cast for a parson. But there was a fairy, good fairy on the sill at the time, and when the wicked fairy had disappeared up the chimney... She came in through the window and, bending over the cradle, said, I bestow upon thee extraordinary literary gifts. Her words floated up the chimney and brought the wicked fairy down again. As soon as the good fairy had departed for some time, she was puzzled to know what new mischief she would be up to. She could not rob the child of the good fairy's gift of expression in writing, but in thy talk she said, Thou shalt be as commonplace as goldsmith, and flew away in the great passion. Unlike Simmons, Yeats is thinner in his writings than in his talk. Very little of himself goes into his literature. Very little can get into it, owing to the restrictions of his style. And these seem to me to have crept closer to Rosa Alchemica, inspiring me to prophesy one day to Simons that Yeats would end by losing himself in Malame, whom he had never read. Simmons did not agree in my estimation of Yeats's talent. I did not press the point by being only really concerned with Yeats in as far as he provided me with literary conversation. A more serious drawback was Yeats's lack of interest in the other arts. He admired and hung Blake's engravings about his room, but it was their literary bent rather than the rhythm of the spacing of the noble line that attracted him, I think. But I suppose one must not seek perfection outside of Paris, and in the temple I was very glad of this company. He is absorbed by literature, even more than Duradin, that prince of Boone companions, for literature has allowed Duradin many love stories, and every one has been paid for with a book. His literature is mainly unwritten. All the time, his women, though they have kept him from writing, have never been able to keep him from his friends. For our sakes, he has had the courage only to be beguiled by such women as those whom he may treat like little slaves, and when one of these companions accompanies him to his beautiful summer residence in Fontainebleau. In those immemorial evenings, sad with the songs of many nightingales, she is never allowed to speak except when she is spoken to, and when she goes with him to Beirut, she has to walk with companions of her own sex, whilst the boon companion explains the mysteries of the ring, musical and literary. If I were to go to his lodgings on the eve of the performance of the Valkyrie and awaken Dryden, he would push his wife aside as soon as he heard the object of my visit was to inquire for him why Wotan is angry with Brunhild because she gives her shield and buckler to Sigmund, where with Sigmund may fight Hungdid. 
hunting on the mountainside and would rise up in bed and say to me, you do not know then that the Vilkir, all the wills of Wotan which fly forth to do his bidding. And if I said that I was not quite sure that I understood him, he would shake himself free from sleep and begin a metaphysical explanation for which he would find justification in the character of the motives. And then, if one were to say to Juradin, Juradin, in a certain scene in the second act of Siegfried, Wagner introduces the question to fade motive without any apparent warrant from the text to do so, I fear he used the motive because his score required the three grave notes. Juradin would, for sure, begin to argue that, though the libretto contained no explicit allusion to the fate in the text, yet fate was implicit in it from the beginning of the scene, Getting out of bed, he would take the volume from the little shelf at his head and would read the entire scene before consenting to go to sleep. And if one were to go to Yeats's bedside at three o'clock in the morning and beg him to explain a certain difficult passage, let us say, in the Jerusalem, he would raise himself up in bed like Juradin and, stroking his pale Buddhistic hands, begin to spin glittering threads of argument and explanation instead of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. He would hear of the... Ruth Crucians and Jacob Bohm. My boon companions are really strangely alike, though presenting diverse appearances. Were I to devote a volume to each, the casual reader would probably mutter as he closed the last a strangely assorted set, but the more intelligent reader would be entertained by frequent analogies. Many of his practice eye would keep cropping up. He would discover that Juradin, though he has written a book in which he worships the massive materialism of ancient Rome and derides the soft diffusive Jewism, Jewism schism known as Christianity, would nevertheless like to preserve a few Catholic monasteries for the use of his last days. At least a dozen would be necessary, for Juradin admits that he would be not unlikely flung out of several before he reached the one in which he was fated to die in long white robe and sandal shoon on impenitent exegetist. But an ardent Catholic, and perhaps to the last a doubtful Christian, how often have I heard him mutter in his beard as he crosses the room, it would be a beautiful end in smock and sandal shoon he is attracted by right and yeats is too but whereas dryden would be the magician to boil the pot for him yeats would cry double double toil and trouble fire burn and cauldron bubble following all the best recipes in the Kavalah, i have often thought that he takes a secret pleasure in the word speaking it with the unction which comes into the voices of certain relations of mine when they mention the bible and from his constant references to the Kabbalah, I judged it to be his familiar reading, though I never saw it in his hand, nor upon his table when I went to see him. So one day, he, when he left the room, I searched for it among his books, but only copies of Morris's and Blake's works came under my hand, and on mentioning the Kabbalah to him when he returned, he began to speak volubly by the, of the alchemist of Rosicrucians, who had left a great mass of mystical writings. The interpretation of these was a business of adepts, and the fair conclusion appeared to be that the instruction from the Kabbalah formed part of the ceremony of in to in initiation into the Order of the Golden Door, an order which, so far as I could gather from his allusions, held weekly meetings somewhere in West Kensington. As soon as I asked him for a copy of the book, the conversation drifted back to the alchemists and Rosicrucians, their oaths, and conclaves, and when we returned spaciously to modern times, I heard for the first time about Macpherson's a learned one in the order. He may have been 
the prior of it, and that, I think, was the case for I remember being told that he had used his authority so unflinchingly that the other members had rebelled against it, and now he had, after expelling the entire, gone away with the book in which was written much secret matter. So far, the order had not replied to his un- his repeated libels, but it would be well for Macpherson to refrain from the publication of their secrets if he did not. It would be hard to prevent certain among them from up to the present of the authority of a certain lady had saved him, but it was by no means sure that she would be able to protect him. Indeed, incurred a great deal. I strained my ears, but Yeats's voice had floated up the chimney, and all I could hear was the sound of one hand passing over the other. Rising from the low stool in the chimney corner, he led me a long box, and among the manuscript I discovered several packs of cards, as it could not be that Yeats was a clandestine bridge player. I inquired the use that the cards were put to, and learned that they were special designed for the casting of horoscopes. He spoke of his uncle, the celebrated occultist, whose predictions were always fulfilled and related some of his own successes. All the same, he had been born under Aquarius, and the calculations of the movements of the stars in that constellation were so elaborate that he had abandoned the task for that moment, and was now seeking the influences of the Pleiades. He showed me some triangles drawn on plain sheets of cardboard into which I was to look while thinking of some primary colour, red or blue and green, and why not? Followed instructions, followed by me, why not? But nothing came of the experiment, and then he selected a manuscript from the box, which he told me was the new rules of the Order of the Golden Door written by himself. There was no need to tell me that, for I recognise always his undulating cadences. These rules had become necessary, or in order could not exist without rule, and hearsay must be kept within bonds, bounds. Though for his part he was prepared to grant each one freedom of will as would not endanger the existence of the order. The reading of the manuscript interested me, and I remember that one of its finest pages relates to the use of vestments. Yeats maintaining with undeniable logic that the ancient priest put on his priestly robe as a means of whereby he might raise himself out of the ordinary into the intenser life, but the Catholic priest puts on an embroidered habit because it is customary, a subtle intelligence which delighted me in times gone by, and I like now to think of the admiration of which I used to listen to Yeats talking in the chimney corner of myself, regretting the mean, many eloquent phrases which floated beyond the recall in the chimney, and unable to banish from my mind the twenty-five men and women collected in the second pair in West Kensington, engaged in the casting of horoscopes and experimenting in hypnotism. As he has been said before, analogies can be discovered in all my boon companions. Could it be otherwise, since they were all collected for my instruction and destruction? Yeats will sit up smoking and talking of literature just like Jardrin. Edward the same, and Yeats and Edward are both addicted to magic. It matters like that. Each cultivates a different magic. The essential is that they like magic. And looking towards the armchairs in which they had been sitting, I said, Yeats likes parlour magic. Edward cathedral magic a queer pair united for the moment in a common cause the production of two plays the heatherfield and the countess kathleen the heatherfield i know but the countess kathleen i have not read and wondering what it might be like i went to the bookcase and took down the volume
Uh, and that's the end of something. Um, like, I, I actually don't know what I just read. To be honest, I don't know a thing that just happened. Yeats is in it. That's the most I can tell you. Um, all right. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.